Remember, assurance is the subjective experience of faith. So faith is something which is objective that God the Holy Spirit gives us. So if you struggle with assurance, there are many of God's people that have struggled with assurance. It's not the same thing as saving faith. You can be trembling all the way to heaven and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. But it's a comfort to have assurance that you, and assurance means that you are confident you've passed from death to life, that you're confident that you're a recipient of the saving favor of God in Christ, that you are a recipient of God's love. Um, We're in the book of Acts today, Acts chapter 13. Oh, you know what? I'm supposed to do this. I've received strict orders. I'm a man under authority. Am I not a man under authority? I think I am. Okay. Acts chapter 13. So we'll get this going, hopefully. Acts 13, and I'm going to read 26. It's the same passage that we looked at last week. And um, there's, there's just so much here. It's a large section of Scripture. 26 to um, 41. And just to forecast, given what we're, my method recently, we'll probably look at this passage with an eye for something else if we're here next week. But um, 26. Hear God's perfect word. Brothers, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross, they laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preached to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and the sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep. He was laid among his fathers and he underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is freed from all the things which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of and the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Gracious God, you are a gracious God. You are utterly sovereign. You do all according to your own divine counsel and pleasure. And we, we, Lord God, are your creatures. And we are utterly dependent upon you. You are the blessed creator. You sustain us moment by moment. And you alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are our redeemer. You are our life. And we pray that this worship service would be devoted to you. 
that we would fulfill the chief purpose for which you've given us life, which is to say to glorify you, to honor you, to magnify you, and to enjoy you. May we enjoy you, Lord God, as we desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. <clears throat> I mentioned we were in this passage last week, and if you were with us last week, we had a, it was my particular purpose to look at uh, Christ as, being, as he's being preached by the Apostle Paul. And if you know the book of Acts, if you know the Bible, you know Paul's ministry. Paul's entire ministry is to make Christ known. Our brother mentioned it this morning when the Bible talks about knowing God or knowing God in Christ, knowing Jesus Christ, known, it's not theoretical. It's, it's personally, personally to, to know him, to, to know God, to know the goodness of God, to know Jesus Christ. I, I probably was too emotional. I, I can't remember whether it was last week or the week before. But it's that, that desire that we wouldn't just have the knowledge of Christ here, that we would really know him and that we would love him. And so Paul's purpose as he goes from synagogue to, to the, the Jews, to the Gentiles, is to make Jesus Christ known. And so if, you, if, you say, if you're looking at the sermons and you say, well, it, there seems to be some redundancy to the sermon, I think it's built in by the Holy Spirit. God the Holy, God the Holy Spirit inspires these holy prophets and holy apostles, Paul in particular here. He's going from place to place to place preaching Christ. And so when we come here... Our desire from this passage is that we would know Jesus Christ. We would know him better. We'd know more about him. It's like when you get married, you think, well, that's the crescendo or the pinnacle of your love experience with your spouse, in my case, my wife. That's not true. The longer you know your spouse, the more deeply you love her or him, the more, because the more you know about him or her. And you say, well, what about the physical vibrancy? Ah, physical vibrancy, schmibrancy. Whatever, that's not, you know what I mean. It's, we, we know this person. And that's the same with Jesus. So we don't come to the Bible to just pass a Bible test. It's good to pass a Bible test. But we come with this burning desire that we would know him more. And, and, and so this passage here is another preaching passage, Jesus Christ. And within this passage, there are two things about Jesus. If I were to hit it with my Bible dividing Wand. There are two things that the Apostle Paul is inspired to write about Christ. He writes about Christ's estate of humiliation, and then he writes about Christ's estate of exaltation. And exaltation is what I hope to do next week. And you know I always say, Lord willing, I drive everybody crazy, and it, it, I, I could be somewhere else, you could be somewhere else. It's my desire next week from this passage to talk about the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to pick up the theme that we looked at last week, which is the humiliation of Jesus. And last week, we looked at merely an introduction. We just skimmed the surface. We wanted to get introduced to it. And then here, what did I title the sermon? A further description. My desire is to unpack from this passage and other portions of Scripture, when we talk about Christ's humiliation, what is it that we mean? but always with an eye to fall deeper in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the love of Christ that should motivate us to serve Christ. So as we look at how Christ has 
entered into this estate of humiliation. No one likes to be humiliated. Have you ever been humiliated in your life? And I'm sure if you have been ever humiliated in your life, you know what day of the week it was, you know what color socks you were wearing, it's seared into your memory, and it's not a good memory, right? Christ entered into an estate of humiliation. And we want to see the various things that the Bible talks about that for our edification, to make us love him more and to serve him more deeply. And I'm going to argue that the more we study Christ in, in both of his estates, it will make us love God and Christ more and it will make us love people more, which is, of course, the fulfillment of the law. The Bible says in a number of places, James and Peter and so on, Romans, that loving our neighbor is the fulfillment of the law, the second table of the law, chapter, uh, commandment 5 to 10. And so th- th- this is here that we would know Jesus more. And when we think of Christ's estate of humiliation and exaltation, but humiliation here, the suffering and the dying, that kind of thing, when we're looking at Christ, Christ is the Greek, um, I, I know baby Greek and baby Hebrew, baby, baby Hebrew. It just means Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the mediator. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man. That's the God-man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We need a mediator. Subsequent the fall of our first father, Adam, no human being walks into the presence of God without a mediator. I know people think they're going to, but they're not. We need that go-between. Job says, oh, I wish that there was a mediator, an umpire between me and God. And there is the God-man Christ Jesus. And so when we're looking at Jesus, we're looking at him in his salvific work, in him as his office of redeemer. We're not considering him, fancy word, ontologically, as the essence of the Son, the essence of being the same with the Father and the Spirit. That's for another, perhaps a a Bible study. But when we are looking at here, is Jesus in his work as our Savior. And when when I talk about that, when we look at Christ and what Christ suffers, his humiliation, what he enters into his, his exaltation, you can always put, and I hope not to do this in the sermon, but I almost want to do it. I want to put, every time we walk through something that describes Christ, I want to put for us. For us. And when I say for us, I mean believers. Not for us generically people. I don't even mean for us generically church folk. I hope you were raised in a church. I hope you go to church. I hope all of those churchy, churchy things are true. But being joined to the church is not the same thing as being joined to Jesus. It's not the same thing. Privileges to the, to the church, of course. So when I say for us, it doesn't mean just church folk. It means Christians. And I don't mean Christian, nominal Christian. I mean Christian, I know him, I love him, he's my life Christian. Does that make sense? So when we look at Jesus, it's the for us. And what that for us means is, in theological language, he's our federal representative. He's our federal representative. Or to use a different kind of language, he's our covenantal head. Sometimes men are referred to as the head of their home, the head of the wife, that kind of an idea. So when the bill keeper comes around and says, knock, knock, I have a bill for Mrs. So-and-so. She should hand it to the husband and say, Honey Bunch, it's for you. Because he's the head of her. When the bad guy comes to the house and says, I'm here to hurt your wife, she says, Honey Bunch, it's for you. Because he's the head of her. He's the representative of the wife. 
Like that, Jesus Christ is the representative of his wife, of his bride. So everything he does, he does, as the Puritans would say, as a public person. So Jesus doesn't enter into the flesh for himself. Jesus is not humiliated for himself. He doesn't die on the cross for himself. He does all of those things for us, for the bride. Why did he hang on the cross for us, for the bride? Does that make sense? So this is here, so we would know Jesus Christ, and the Bible says that we would know Jesus Christ savingly, and that by believing we have what in his name? Life in his name. And life is not just the continuance of this, as much as we like this. It's the reconciled, friendly presence of God. And so we have it through Christ. So we're looking at Christ's estate of humiliation as our covenantal head, our federal representative. Let me start with a definition, because today, today's purpose is to kind of further describe what, it, what do we mean when we say is a state of humiliation, which we see in the, the passage. <clears throat> dictionary, English dictionary definition of humiliation. To humiliate is to lower or to reduce to a lower position. To humiliate is to reduce to a lower position. So to start from a higher position and, to, re, and to, to bring to a lower position. And this is Jesus. This is Jesus. We get our English word, I think, from a Latin word, which the root is hummus. And hummus means ground or dirt or low to the earth. Think of that. We should be hummus. Every one of us should be Hummus. Every one of us should be lying in the dirt before God, before Christ. Christ, the infinite, eternal, unchangeable Lord of glory, the second person of the Godhead, the beloved Son of the beloved Father, hummus, humiliation, earth, made himself low. The Bible says this, This is the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. I was going to read this, but I didn't want to go too long. Acts chapter 8 is quoting Isaiah 52. If you know the book of Isaiah, like chapter 45 to chapter 55 is the suffering servant passage. Sometimes they refer to Jesus as the Ben Joseph, like son of Joseph. As Joseph was a suffering servant, a type of Jesus Christ, so too Jesus Christ is that suffering servant. The Bible says he was a man of what? Many sorrows. That's an aspect of Christ's humiliation. The writer to the Acts quotes Isaiah. This is Christ. In humiliation, Christ. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. Christ willingly humiliated himself, even to death on the cross. Philippians 2, which is another classic, and I'm going to interact with that in the body of the sermon under the classic passage about the, the, the humiliation of Jesus, especially uh, uh, Philippians 2, 1-11, something like that. Verse 8. Being found, this is Christ, being found in the appearance of man, he, Jesus, humbled himself, hummus, to the dirt, low, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We, we just read it in our passage. They found no ground for putting him to death. They asked Pilate for him to be executed. You remember why? 
They didn't want the Christ that was promised to him. They didn't want the kind of Messiah that God sent. Who did they want? They wanted a political king to do what? To kill the Romans. And when Jesus says, I'm not here to kill the Romans, I'm here to kill your sin. What did they say? We have no king but what? But Caesar. These are church people. People in the household of faith. They don't want the Christ of the Bible. They don't want this Christ who's come in the estate of humiliation. What kind of Christ do they want? They want an Islamic Christ that will take a sword and chop your head off. But that's not the Christ of the Bible. The Christ of the Bible comes and he humbles himself as a servant, even to a servant that would die on the cross. But the flesh doesn't want that. Even the flesh of some Christians is very, very silly. They don't want what the Bible clearly says God wants. They executed him. When they carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross, they laid him in the tomb. He suffered, he died, he was buried. All his humiliation. The second person of the Godhead becomes a man for that. We didn't read it, but I'll read it now. Our secondary standards are the Westminster Confession. It's a Puritan document. Just so you know, you'll probably never come back again. But we're a Puritan church born out of time. That's what we are. Everybody is something. We're just the grandchildren of the English Puritans. And our secondary standard says this, which I think is an accurate summary of the primary standard. Again, we're just trying to get a definition of Christ's humiliation. Shorter catechism. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Remember, it's past tense, because we're going to look at the exaltation later. Christ's humiliation consisted, and there are five, six propositions, in his being born and in that low condition made under law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. And what were those two words that I said I wanted to say every time we came to a a salient point about this? For us. For us. For us. Christ underwent this to purchase us, to redeem us from the slavery of sin, to redeem us from the slavery of the devil. If we don't understand the bad news, no person ever embraces Jesus Christ savingly, the good news, without believing the bad news. And not just conceptually, I mean for me, for you. Unless we beat our breasts and say, Thou son of David, have mercy on me, the sinner. We never look at thou son of David. Unless we can say, for me. He suffered for me. He died for me. He rose for me. This isn't just theory class. This is not just for folks out there. Your mom may not believe. Your mom may believe. But it has to be for us. For me. Now, we talk about the estate of Christ's humiliation. And I asked at the outset, can any of us remember a time that you were ever humiliated? And usually... There are many times in our lives that we could say, well, I was humiliated when I was six, and I remember when I was 18, I tried to do a pull-up in front of the other guys in gym class, and I could only do one pull-up, and they all laughed, look, you can't do a pull-up. And it has hounded me the rest of my life. Something like that. And I'm not sharing. I think it wasn't 18, it was like 16. I couldn't do a (laughs) pull-up. I couldn't do a pull-up. Whatever. But those are like the occasions of humiliation, Right? Occasion. 
means it happened here. And you may say, uh, you know, my whole life, like Rodney Dangerfield, I get no respect my whole life. It's a whole light of, of humiliation. Oh, no, 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 no. When we talk about Christ's estate of humiliation, we mean something more than just one or two occurrences where he made himself low and suffered humiliation. It's the whole time. It's the whole time. We... We are the fa- I'm the fast food generation. You're the fast food generation. We're all the fast food generation. It happened, the fast food generation began in Genesis 3, 1 through 8. We want it our way. We don't want God's way. We don't want God's time. We want our time, which is yesterday. And we want what we want, when we want. Have a little kid. I'm not picking, not Asher. Asher will never do this. But all other little kids. We want what we want, when we want. We don't care who wants what we want. We want it. Imagine being told, You don't have to suffer for a day, a week, or be humiliated for a month or even a year. Your whole earthly life, the entire thing, from the time you were conceived and born to the time you die and go home, will be one long perpetual experience of humiliation. Imagine. I pitch a fit. Our brother taught it in Sunday school. Generally, we're happier when things go well in our lives. Our kids are healthy. Our grandkids are healthy. We're healthy. We have enough money in the bank to like, pay the bills. And things are like, kind of okay. And we're kind of okay. Touch the creature, the creature things, and we, we, we fall apart. And we fall apart because we're trusting in the creature. When we're told all of your creature comforts, you won't have any. You'll be a man of sorrows your whole entire life. Who would do this? Who would, who, who would willingly do this for the purpose of saving? What kind of people does God save in Christ? Good people? Good people? Are, are people basically good? What do you think? The Bible says. The Bible says. Not many of you this, not many of you that. You're not wise, you're not powerful. You're liars, drunkards, fornicators, homosexual offenders, blasphemers. You don't love God. Disobedient to mother and father. And for those people, Christ left glory for an entire lifetime of humiliation. What's the response? What what should be the response? Without faith, you just think, well, um, what, what time's the, the tea time today? Can we go to the beach? But with faith in Jesus Christ, when you look at what he has done, his whole earthly existence, that he would redeem us, the response of faith is, is just loving gratitude. It's just loving gratitude. I, I love you, and I want my whole life to be a thank offering. Because of this. So his entire time was one of humiliation, the king of glory. Now, the motive, we talked a little bit about the motive for Christ's. And remember, you remember in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. And he said, No one takes my life from me. There's a famous talking head. He's a a Jewish talking head. He's a non Christian Jewish talking head. He's a political talking head. And he says that of of Christ, um, he says of Christ that he was just a political rabble-rouser, got himself in a pickle with with the Romans, and the Romans killed him. 
did the, is that what happened? Just, just, did Jesus just get himself in a jam and just end up, you know what, I can't. They, they came and they have the clubs and they have the thing and off they go and Pontius Pilate and they kill me. I can't do anything about it. Was that what happened? That's not what happened. That's not what happened. He was tried by a church court and the church court said, we have no Caesar, king but Caesar, kill him. He was tried by the civil court and said, you make yourself to be a king, we're going to kill you. And Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I do what? I willingly offer it. I willingly lay it down. I'm going to take it up again, but I willingly do it. The Bible says when we talk about this condescending, condescension to humiliation, whole life, for the, what is it, Hebrews 12? For the joy set before him. For the joy. I've said this before. My wife was my college girlfriend, but this could be true of your college girlfriend who's now your wife. If someone said to you when you were dating your wife, hey, listen, after your second shift or you're working all day at the factory or school or whatever it may be, you have to drive four hours to go see her. Four hours? At 20-something years old, even after two, two, two shifts? That's nothing. Give me two pots of coffee and I'm there. Why? What's the thing that drives you? You're madly in love with her. You're madly in love. People do what they want to do. People do what they want to do. People go to church because they want to go to church, or they don't go to church because they don't want to go to church. And we're driven from love. We should do it from love. I come here because I love God and Christ. For that reason, Christ left glory the motivation of love he clothed himself with the rags of humanity and again the one that he loves is us and left to ourselves and I know we and I'm not saying like oh you have a low view of people and blah 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 blah. I want to have a bible view of people I want to love people and be gracious to folks but let's not call people what God doesn't call them Jesus, for the love of the bride, humbles himself, is love. So when we look at this, humbling ourselves, ourselves think, th- think of Ephesians chapter 5. Everyone who is a husband here, everyone who is a Christian husband, who is a Christian wife, you are to love your wife, how? As Christ loved the church. That's how. And what does that mean? I have my rights. I'm the head of the house. It doesn't mean any of that. You are to die to yourself. Pick up your cross and serve her. That you would present her spotless, clean, without blemish. That's what Christ does. Christ so loved his bride, he willingly left glory, that he would die for the likes of us to present herself spotless. And we're going to go from experiencing Jesus here in the, the eternal estate. There's no more Lord's Supper because it's going to be replaced with another meal. It's the marriage feast of the Lamb. And not only is it the love of the bride that motivates Christ to enter the, into this estate of humiliation, it's the love of the Father. It is, it, this is mysterious. This is John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. The inter-Trinitarian relationship is a mind-blower. Our brother George was teaching Sunday school. He's talking about the aseity of God, the eternality of God, the, the essential existence of God. 
I told him at the end, this is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. We can't understand it. How the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit interact throughout all eternity without beginning, without end, is a mind blower. But the Son loves the Father. And the Bible says that He always does the things that please His Heavenly Father. So it's not only for the love of the bride, but it's for the love of the Father that He willingly submits. Again, think of that. When God's, we're Christians, we're all professing believers. When the Word of God comes to you and says, I don't know, X, Y, Z, my will for you is X, Y, Z, and that will is through the valley of the shadow of the death. That will is in a crucible. Let's just say, you know it's crucible time. God wants it. What's our response? Do we say back to the will of God, the Word of God? Well, your word, your will is pain. I don't want pain. Whose will wins? The Father said to the Son, It pleases me to crush you to purchase the bride. And what did the Son say? Then it pleases me to be crushed. There's, I'm, I'm reading, you know I'm reading Zwingli. He believes some things I think are interesting, some things I disagree with. He believed in um, pious pagans, Socrates, he likes Socrates and some other guys. And uh, he speculated that we might see them in heaven, for which Luther, Luther abused him for that one. But um, Zwingli wrote a poem, a hymn. He was a musician like Luther. Um, he got the plague. And I think it killed a quarter of Zurich. And Zurich was only like nine or 10,000. So he got it. And he got better. And he wrote, you can read it online. It's, it's, his, um, it's, a, it's a hymn. He came this close to death. And he has a little line subsequent this poem, but he's in referencing to it. He says, Lord, I belong to you. And I'm paraphrasing. If, if it pleases you to, to, to crush me and to break me, then break me. That's what I want, if that's what you want. If, if it pleases you to make me well and live, then that's what I want. But I want what you want. Whatever you do with me, painful or pleasant, sickness, life, that's what I want. I want what you want. Oh, beloved. The Lord Jesus Christ set his face like flint towards the cross, humiliation, out of love for the bride, but out of love for the Father. His love is the great motive. You can get people to do things out of fear. I'll beat you with a stick if you don't do things. That's not a very good motive. Though God does sometimes use the the lower motive of the threatening of the law. I want to look at the character of Christ's humiliation to describe some of the aspects wherein we see Christ humiliate himself. The Bible says this, and I know in different churches, and I'm not feeling very feisty this morning, I don't want to pick on other churches um, particularly, but the Bible will talk about poverty and riches and health and wealth. I think it's spiritually applied I don't think Jesus was a general contractor driving a Mercedes with pockets full of cash. I reject that. I'm not being silly. There are people who say, if you're a Christian, you should be, Jesus was a carpenter, and carpenters now make big money, and you should make big money. It's just silly. Okay, 2 Corinthians, verse 8 and 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty, you might become rich. 
And here's the wonder of Christ's embracing poverty. He relinquished riches. Most of us, when we get married, we didn't have two cents to, get, to, to rub together. And so if you say, well, you have to, to, to relinquish your riches. What riches? We're eating like, I don't know, mac and cheese and, and tuna fish. So it's no great difficulty to, to, to relinquish riches when you don't have them. Christ is the Lord of glory. He willingly makes himself poor. That in Jesus Christ, we would, we would be spiritually rich. So he, he embraced poverty. He relinquished riches. I think for, maybe I should say this. There is a place, because you may be thinking this, and I don't want anyone to leave believing this error. Sometimes as Christians, we hold Christological errors. It means an error about Jesus. It, it, we're still Christians, but we're wrong in an area. And here's a common one regarding the humiliation of Jesus. It comes from Philippians. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not re- regard equality with God. Jesus is, is, is equal with God. Read John 1.1. Because he is God, the second person in the Godhead. A thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. I think the word is kenosis. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. I do know that word in Greek is doulos. He emptied himself. He took the form of a doulos. He's a slave. Some of you, if you're pregnant, girls are pregnant, they get a doula, which is just a slave girl who helps. I mean, I'm not saying she's a slave girl now, but it's a slave girl. That's what doulos is. It's, in, it's the nominative masculine singular. That's male, slave. He emptied himself. And my professor, Dr. Piper, one time talking on this, he said he didn't emptied himself by subtraction. He's, he is, Christ is, is fully God. Can fully God change? Can he take away? Can God take away from his being? No, he can't. he's not. He can't take away. So Dr. Piper said he didn't take away by subtraction. He took away by addition. He veiled over his divinity or deity with the rags of humanity. So that's what it means that he emptied himself. He didn't stop being God. He can't stop being God. He began to be man, but he covered over it with the rags of humanity. And we think rags of humanity. King of glory takes to himself a real human body, a real human soul, the creator of time and space, the one who stands outside of time and space, enters into time and space. Is that humiliating? Think of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as far as as what he suffered. Think of his mom. I I don't do mother of God. I know the the Theotokos. I don't do mother of God. I know Nestorius, the whole argument. It just makes me nervous. And then the argument is Jesus is God, so we can say Theotokos, um, God-bearer. Well, if you want to say he's the mother mother of his humanity, I just, I can't do the other. You may argue with me from a smart guy. I just can't go there. Think of Mary. Mary. So she's conceived, she conceives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, what did Christ's enemies call him his whole life? What did they call him? I won't use the word, but they called him illegitimate. Your folks weren't married. Joseph's not your dad. We think your dad is thus and so. You're illegitimate. The king of glory being called that name. He comes into the world through this little girl, little woman, in She's not a queen's daughter. 
and she's kind of a, a nothing young woman, but she's a godly young woman. She, you see the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, which is phenomenal. She had faith, but she's just this humble, lowly woman. He's born of her. And she, she, Jesus is conceived in Nazareth, and he's born in Bethlehem. And where is Jesus born? King of glory, bear, born where? In a barnyard. If your wife was pregnant and she was about to give birth, would you let her be, give birth in a barnyard? Would you? Why? There was no room in the inn for the creator of heaven and earth. And when was he born? Was Jesus born in a high time, spiritually speaking, for the people of Israel or a very low time? The Bible says in the book of Genesis, chapter 49, 10, the scepter departs from Judah. They're a subjugated people. They're under the jackboot of the, of the Gentiles. They're under Gentile tyranny. People think, oh, oh, look at what's happening politically. God, what's God doing? It's when the church is like this, politically, socioeconomically, God is doing amazing things. He comes in through a lowly woman. He's born in a lowly place. He comes in at a lowly time. And it, what about his family? Did the immediate family of Jesus Christ initially think, you are, Christ, you are God come in the flesh? What did they think of him? They thought he was out of his mind. Come get your son. Come get your brother. He's out of his mind. That's what they said concerning Jesus. Is that humiliating? And not only that, Jesus is out doing good to the bodies and the souls of people. And you know what the people say concerning Jesus, the church folk? He's a tool of the devil. He's a tool of Beelzebub. He's a friend of, of drunkards and, and, and prostitutes and tax collectors. That's who he is. The king of glory. And I'll just say as an aside... Is he a friend of drunkards and prostitutes and tax collectors? Praise God he is. Praise God he is. Because every last one of us would be undone if he wasn't. But this is what they said about him. And even his own people at the very end, what did all of his own guys do? Oh, we're going to be with you right to the death. What happens right to the very end? They all ran away. They all ran away. And how did he die? How was Christ's death? I want to read something. I don't think um, I, I don't think we could even um, I don't think we could even bear looking at Christ on the cross. I don't think we could do it. God so loved the world, He sends the Son. Christ so loves His people. Lord of glory, spit upon, mocked, abused, lied on, hated, goes to the cross. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. What do you think of that? Do you ever walk through your life, I, I do this, and take your life and look at the Ten Commandments as applied to your life, and then spiritually speaking, 
Do you ever do that? I've had another God. I've worshipped God falsely. I've taken God's name in vain. I've abused his day. I'm a fornicator, a liar, a blasphemer. Have you ever done those kind of things? The wages of all of those sins is death. Christ became a lightning rod. The sinless one, Paul says. The just one dies for the unjust ones that we could be just. That's the humiliation of Jesus Christ. It's just, um, it's just, um, just overwhelming. And when is the termination of Christ's state of humiliation? When does it terminate? When does it end? In three days in the grave, he gets out of the grave. Christ is no longer in an estate of humiliation. I want to end our look at the humiliation of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus today, with a very brief application uh, to all of us as, as believers. I'm going to talk brother to brother, brother to sister, brother to mother and father, Christian to Christian. Christians are lovers of Christ. We live for him. He is our whole life. Jesus is our whole life. To live as Christ, to die is to gain Christ. Jesus is, is everything to us. And when we look at this business of Christ humiliating himself, suffering for us, the Bible says this. Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Bible says, If we are children, we're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Christ, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul says this in Philippians. Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And listen to this. This is, it relates to what we're talking about. And the fellowship of his sufferings. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Beloved, it's good for us to think about Christ more than we do. And it's good for us as Christians to think about it, to meditate on the humiliation of Jesus Christ for us. It weans us from what the Puritans would say is the great tyrant of our lives. The great tyrant of our lives is not the devil or the world. It's self. It's self. It's self. When we think of what Christ suffered for us, it crucifies that tyrant self. It crucifies the lust and the desire we have for sin. It crucifies this craving for the world and its things. And it makes us love Jesus more than we do. And it makes us love people. And it makes us love them, not with just word, but with deed. 
And another thing that meditating on the, the, the humiliation of Christ and the termination of that humili- humiliation, it makes us want to be with him. And I don't mean just want, oh, I want to die because life is so hard. All of us have that problem. All of us have that. All of, anybody over than five has thought that. I want to die because life is so hard. That, that, but it's not that. It's desire to be with him. The more we think on Christ, what he did for us, it's not running away from something. It's what Paul says in, in Philippians. It's a running to. Oh, my sufferings, if it could throw me on Christ, the even contemplating death, if it could throw me on Christ, it's going to bring me to Christ. I, I pray to God that this sermon would be, bring glory to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that it would build you up in the faith of your Savior. In in Christ's name, amen.